Today, we're bringing you a story of how politics have been playing out in Venezuela. As the first election to include the country's top opposition parties in four years wrapped, we learned that violence broke out at polling sites in different parts of the country. One person has died and others are wounded. We'll be watching the situation closely on aljazeera.com as details continue to emerge. The people we spoke to in the last few days have really helped paint a picture of what life in the South American country has been like leading up to the election on Sunday. So here's today's episode. Can you count to 10? Let's just see how much I can hear of your counting. One, two, three, four, five, nine, I got one and two. Oh, oops. Did I lose you? Trying to get a hold of our guest today was a little bit of a challenge. Nelson Eduardo is in Caracas, Venezuela, and five minutes before our interview, the power went out. It's not an unusual occurrence either, just a clear example of what many Venezuelans go through nearly every day. Electricity has become a luxury for most people in Venezuela. Outrage over shortages of food, medicine, and now electricity. A lack of efficient public services, a deep economic and humanitarian crisis, plus international sanctions against President Nicolas Maduro and his allies have left many in the country feeling apathetic when it comes to politics. It's a farce. The government, despite announcing elections, they have already won. The South American nation just held regional elections, the first ones in 15 years with international observers. But can this international presence help rebuild trust in an electoral system seen as flawed by electors? I'm Malika Bilal, and this is The Take. My name is Nelson Eduardo Bocaranda. I currently head runrun.es, which is an independent media outlet in Venezuela, and we specialize in investigative journalism. Through a lot of workarounds, we finally managed to get a conversation going, despite the power outage. When you have power outages, about how long do they last? Well, it's not a standard time. For example, last Sunday, we had a power outage that lasted 17 hours. But the Sunday before that, we had one that only lasted a couple of hours. So it's unpredictable how long it lasts. Talk to me about what it's like to live in Venezuela today, just from your perspective. Well, as you can see, it's not the, the kindest place of them all to be. We have running blackouts that constantly make life a bit harder. And what you tend to see here is a very small sector of society, of the citizens, finding whatever services and goods they can on their own. So what I mean with this is that if you want to have running water 24 hours a day, seven days a week, you have to build your own well. And I'm not talking about like a small well in an impoverished town somewhere in the middle of the country. I'm talking about wells in Caracas. You build your well next to your apartment building for the whole apartment building to get water from. If you want electricity 24 hours a day, seven days a week, you need to buy a power plant and you have to secure yourself a fuel stash so that when power goes out, you need your power plant running to just electrify your whole house. 
The same goes for the internet. So if you want to have connection free of censorship without any websites blocked, you need to find a satellite internet service provider. Wow. So what does that meant for people's day-to-day lives? We know 76% of the population lives in extreme poverty. The country started the year with an almost 300% inflation rate. And Nicolas Maduro's government recently decided to dollarize the economy. How has that shaped people's lives when it comes to what they can purchase, how they live? So regarding the dollarization, it wasn't a formal dollarization of the economy. It's a very informal sort of permission for people just to charge for goods and services in dollars. Uh, The dollarization of the economy came in the form of paying for gas, which used to be subsidized by the government. We used to fill up a whole tank of gas, 40 liters of gas, for less than a dollar. Now we're paying 50 cents per liter. So you're filling up a car with more than $20. So in that sense, that's the only sense that there's an official conversion towards the dollarization of the economy. But in every other sense, it's an informal and in many ways illegal to charge for goods and services in dollars. But now we have the upside of having them accepting cash currency in dollars here in Venezuela. We are seeing the opposition-held National Assembly publishing inflation rates as low as anywhere from 5 to 6% a month. And that's mainly because the currency where everyone's using is dollars. So walk me through going to the grocery store. What does that look like for many people? We used to have very high scarcity rates regarding food. There's been a policy of open borders, no taxation on imports regarding food. So now we're getting lots of goods from all around the world, mainly Turkey, because there's this sort of unspoken bond between the Venezuelan government and the Turkish government. They're exchanging gold and oil for food. So if you walk into a supermarket, you're going to see a regular supermarket as you would The challenge comes when it's your turn to pay. The Venezuelan credit cards or debit cards only allow up to a maximum of bolivares to be spent a day. So you're pretty much obliged to use hard currency from the U.S. So you either have to do it through Venmo, Zelle, or through a transfer from your bank account to the account of the supermarket. Or in best case scenario is if you have hard currency, the cash, dollar bills to pay for it. Now, you're not going to get loose change in return for what you pay. So you're going to have to round up to the next 10 uh, because coins are not used here and bills such as the $1 bill or the $5 bill are really hard to find. So they make you round up. If your total is 33 bucks, you have to round up to 40. And that's just become a regular way of life here in Venezuela. Paying the bus ticket in cash is difficult because we cannot withdraw Bolivars from the ATMs and very few people have Bolivars in cash. So our other option is paying with dollars because people always have one, two, three dollars with them. But sometimes we don't have change in dollars. Under these conditions, there's a lot at stake for people when it comes to picking who their next leaders will be. And on November 21st, Venezuela held a vote for local councils, mayors, and state governors. We spoke to Nelson a few days before people went to the polls. What is different about this election than previous ones? 
Well, this is the first election in quite a while that has gotten international observation. The other thing that changed is that the CNE, which is the Consejo Nacional Electoral, the Electoral Council here in Venezuela, for the first time in more than 10 years, has a bit more of an impartial hue than it used to before. It tended to obviously shift towards the government representation inside this electoral college of ours. Now we have a few members inside the directory, inside the board of directors of this electoral council that can pretty much vouch if something regular happened. Now, these elections are pretty unlikely to change the political landscape in Venezuela. Uh, no one expects anything to change, no matter what the outcome of these elections has been. Wow. And pretty much is because historically, every time the opposition holds uh, a new either governorship or municipality, the government, what they do is they put a entity above them and their power is automatically just diluted or taken away. What is the atmosphere like? Do you feel like it's an election? Is there excitement? It's a very weird sort of feeling because usually, well, well, we are getting the posters. We are getting some very small groups of people in the streets. But once you start talking to the people and you're saying, hey, are you going to vote? And most of the people aren't even realizing there's an election. Wow. And this comes not as a shock to us because for the past 10 years, the opposition has said, look, elections don't work in Venezuela. You can't trust the electoral system. So this message has gone deeply rooted inside the citizens. So people don't trust elections as a means to change. And what's different is that before, even six years ago, you used to have mainstream media that could help you reach those critical masses of voters. For the past 10 years, the government has been actively not only censoring free media, but also buying some of these media outlets. So now the opposition, they don't even have the means to reach the critical mass of voters to come to vote. And while the local elections are not getting as much attention internationally, there's an individual who is making headlines about Venezuela. Alex Saab, a Colombian businessman, extradited to the U.S. this weekend. U.S. officials claim Saab was behind a corruption network that allowed Maduro and his allies to steal hundreds of millions of dollars from the Venezuelan people. Alex Saab, President Maduro's ally, is facing charges in the U.S. of money laundering. And he could become a key figure in the next few months as part of the U.S. Justice Department's investigation into corruption, possibly involving the Venezuelan president. So Alex Saab, he plays an incredible, intricate role in finding a way for the government to bypass sanctions established by the EU and the U.S., and his role was pretty much to just go overseas with whichever he could barter with, gold or oil or any other commodity that he could use for him to buy food at steep overprices and with very little to no quality at all and send it back to Venezuela to fill up boxes that were handed out to the poorest people in the country with the least economic capabilities of buying their own food, which led to malnourishment of children, which led to a whole other array of problems because the quality of the food was so bad and the prices at which 
Venezuela bottom through this intermediary were so steep. Alex Saab was not a diplomat, but the government has this whole story built around him on how he was flying on a humanitarian mission to buy food and medicine for the Venezuelan people. Saab made a stop for fuel in Cape Verde in his private jet. There, an Interpol notice alerted authorities and he was captured and sent to jail. More than a year later, the United States extradited him to Miami. But the truth is that he wasn't on a diplomatic mission. He didn't have diplomatic status, and that's what led to his arrest. The interest they have with Alex Saab is that he played a key role in laundering money and just creating those um, mechanisms to bypass sanctions. At the moment of Saab's extradition, Maduro's government was in the middle of negotiations with the opposition held in Mexico. The dialogue was suspended by the government of Venezuela as a way to protest against the U.S. extradition. This is what Maduro said at the time. They took him without telling the lawyers, the family, or anyone else. It's a kidnapping of an international diplomat that was entirely organized by the U.S. government. This is a landmark case that we've never seen before regarding the position the government of Venezuela is in. There can be a trove of information that can come out of this case. And we've read reports from Associated Press and others that say that Saab has been talking with the federal government of the United States way before his extradition. So we're just going to have to wait and see what comes out of this. So you mentioned gold. Where does the gold come in from? Gold plays a a very specific role in the schemes set up by Alex and by others. We've had a very long history of mining gold in Venezuela, a history that goes back more than 500 years. But seven years ago, when sanctions started rolling in, they found out that the quickest way for them to get a commodity that they could barter with in exchange for anything was gold. Mm. And you can't trace back where this gold came from. Once it goes, it just gets melted and you're going to get people all around the world accepting it as currency. Why do you think this case is most important? What does the U.S. government expect to get from him? Well, I can't quite say what they're expecting from him, but what we pretty much expect is just to get a a clear glimpse on how these schemes and mechanisms that they have been using to bypass sanctions work and who's involved in those dealings. Alex Saab's case is just one example of the many international legal procedures that are currently open involving the Venezuelan government and its allies. So how do cases against the government factor into how Venezuelans view these regional elections and Maduro's overall future? My name is Phil Gunson. I'm the senior analyst for the International Crisis Group, an international NGO based in Brussels which focuses on conflict resolution. I'm the senior analyst for the Andes region, and I'm based in Caracas, Venezuela. We asked Phil if Saab's case could be critical to Maduro staying in power. This is a a legal case which is going to go through the courts. It may or may not be that in the course of this, Saab hands over some information that is useful, not just from a legal point of view, but also politically, or it may not. And in any case, this will take time. And I, I don't think it's really going to be, if you like, the straw that breaks the camel's back. But it's obviously bad news for Maduro, and the opposition has been celebrating it as well they might. 
Saab faces one count of conspiracy to commit money laundering, which is punishable by up to 20 years in prison in the U.S. But if he becomes an informant of Maduro's alleged wrongdoings, the opposition could build momentum from the findings. Remember we mentioned this election has international electoral observers? Well, Phil says their presence creates a greater democratic space. But... Is there going to be any change? I think what we have to realize at the moment, again, rather contrary to what the mainstream opposition has presented over recent years. This is not going to be a quick fix. The the problems in Venezuela are deep-seated now and very hard to fix, and the government is entrenched. This is not a government that's going to fall tomorrow. But what this election represents, I think, is a first step back towards a more realistic policy. Because the transition in Venezuela, when it happens, that's not going to be an event. That is going to be a process. And processes are, by their nature, they are step by step. This first step with the elections return to the idea that you have to do grassroots organizing, that the opposition, first of all, needs to vastly broaden its appeal. Most people want change, but they don't see that change necessarily coming through the opposition as presently constituted. So what needs to happen is the movement needs to be broadened. It needs to address ordinary people's concerns much more directly. So it's a slow process, but it does, I think, represent a restoration of some kind of a more realistic approach. Nelson agrees with Bill. He also thinks that the international observer's presence can help build trust within the electorate in the country. I believe that once you you start trusting a little bit more in the electoral system, that we might get that as an outcome from these small elections, people can be hyped up for a presidential election. And if you get international observation for a presidential election, that's going to be the important battle for the opposition and the government to have. And once you get to that stage, I believe that you're going to get people interested in participating and you're going to get a stronger sense of unity behind an opposition to Maduro's government than what we're seeing right now. So, Nelson, your father is a well-known, respected journalist in Venezuela, and you followed in his footsteps into this career. It can't have been easy, though, throughout so much of the hardship that you've laid out over these last several years, and so many people have left the country. You are still there, still weathering the blackouts, still reporting. What keeps you going? This is the only place I can call home. And there's no one's keeping a safe watch on human rights violations, corruption cases, everything that just diminishes that sense of a home. So if we stop doing our work as journalists here, even though we do have hardships, my father hasn't been able to leave the country for the past four years. They took his passport away without there being even a legal case behind it. Our website has been censored, closed, and and prohibited by internet service providers, private and state-owned. But someone has to do this work. If we're not doing this, then no one else is going to do it. And as journalists, we might not see our investigations having an effect in the short term. But in the long term, these things have to be there for people to read and for people to realize how a whole country was destroyed by a small group of people without any scruples who were just interested in making money and making a profit. And that's The Take. 
Mira, lo que es tener mala suerte. What it means to have very bad luck. We just got the internet back and we just got power back. <laughs> Fantastic. Of course. Murphy's Law. This episode was produced by Ney Alvarez with Priyanka Tilbe, Ruby Zaman, Nagin Oliai, Alexandra Locke, Amy Walters, and me, Malika Bilal. Alex Roldan was the sound designer. Aya El is our engagement producer. Tom Fenton is our story editor, and Stacey Samuel is the Takes executive producer. Special thanks to Tamoa Calzadia, Teresa Bo, and Juan Mayu. We'll be back.